Hello, and welcome to Sacred Adventure Begin, an inquisitive space where we explore topics like gaining wisdom, travel, yoga, meditation, dance, art, and following our soul-guided paths. I'm your host, Emily, from gettingintoit.com, and together we'll focus on enjoying, sharing, and interpreting our sacred adventures and how to embody these lessons in our daily lives. Let's begin. There was or is in different parts of the world such a, an intuitive and um, a knowledgeable level of, of what is earth, right? Yep. And how it grows and how it's nurtured and how it nurtures us. And, and the spirit of that, which then gets personified and mythologized and stories are created so that people can understand the spiritual reality of it. Yep. <clears throat> I want I want that in my life. Oh my gosh. As you could hear from that clip, today's interview is going to be an amazing interview with international artist and good friend Ada Pilar Cruz. Before we get into the interview, though, and for those of you who are following what's going on in my life, um, Patrick and I did move up here to Boston, and we bought a home that was built in 1864, which uh, may or may not mean anything to you, but up here it is very uncommon for homes to have air conditioning, and on the day that we, Ada, we being Ada and I, recorded this interview. It was a very, very hot day and I wanted the recording to sound good. So I sat downstairs in the kitchen with the windows open and the fan running. And over the course of this interview, you're going to hear some sounds and I apologize for that. Um, on the day that we recorded, my neighbors decided, decided to start taking down their fence and you'll hear some dogs barking in the background. And at one point the, um, machine that filters our water turns on and you'll hear some water running and I apologize for that but for those of you who can hang tight I promise you an amazing powerful interesting interview with Ada and beauty can be from nature from the heavens you can see the comets going by the the shooting stars the glowing moon and and you know in art it's what other humans make Mm. Other human beings spent the time, you know, to make that piece so beautiful. They they had to be skilled. They had to practice. And and I just find it, you know, gorgeous. And mm. so that is how spirituality weaves into my world. <laughs> Today we are talking to our very first international artist. Ada Pilar Cruz. She is a good personal friend of mine, and I actually met her while I was doing an artist residency in Raghurajpur, India. I think if you roll back a few episodes, you can hear what a interesting, disastrous <laughs> uh, experience that was. But one of the cool things that came out of that residency was that because we were in such harsh conditions due to lack of organization on the part of the organizer, 
Um, it bonded many of us artists together, and we got to know each other in a very, very real, very, very intimate kind of way. I mean, when you're um, waking up in the morning and having to turn on a water pump so that you can have showers, and sometimes the pump doesn't work, and so you might have to run down the street, you know, in your pajamas to get somebody to help you. <laughs> you, you get to know each other on a new level, but um, Ada's work is incredibly beautiful. I love the narrative aspect of it. That is the way that her pieces tell a story, and this is um, evident in her more figurative works. So her, for those of you who are not artists, um, her works that look like bodies, like humans, um, but it is also true of her really, really beautiful work with seaweed, which you'll have to hop on over to her website. It's adapilarcruz.com. A link will be in the show notes for you to check out there. Um, I don't want to spend too, too much time introducing her. I do want to read to you from her website, her, um, from her about page and then get right on into the interview. So here we go. Her bio on her website reads, Ada Pilar Cruz has a Master's of Fine Arts in Sculpture for, from Cranbrook Academy of Arts. Again, for those of you who don't know, this is a very prestigious university and a master's is considered a terminal degree in art, um, meaning at that point you can be a professor. She primarily makes clay sculptures and constructs installations. She also works with printmaking and book arts. Her work has been exhibited in New York, where she resides, across the U.S. and internationally. Cruz is also a lecturer and educator of modern and contemporary art at MoMA's Education Department, where she has worked since 1995. In 2008, she joined the Drawing Center as a lecturer and educator with family programs where she gives workshops about contemporary drawing. She is also a professor of art history for Mercy College. Among the awards and residencies she has received are Studio Museum in Harlem, Jerome Foundation Grant and Residency, New York Foundation for the Arts Grant, kind of a big deal, y'all, Lower East Side Print Shop, Ellensville, New York, Storefront Residency, Museum of Art and Design, and more recently, including the one that she and I did together in India, and the Nez Artist Residency in Iceland. Further, Cruz works on collaborative projects, making sculptures and installation in various communities. She's currently working on a community art project with Arts 10566 in Peekskill, New York. Finally, she is a member of the Buster Levy Gallery in Cold Springs, New York, the Taller Borica, the Rafael Tofino Print Studio in Spain, oh, excuse me, in Spanish Harlem, New York, and her sculpture studio is in Lake Peskill, New York. I'm sure I butchered the pronunciation on that. Um, but you can find her online and you can check out how amazing her work is. And I hope you enjoy the conversation and the themes that we talk about in this episode. Hello, Ada, and welcome to the Sacred Adventure Begin podcast. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a professional artist. I work out of my studio making ceramic sculptures um, or installations or site-specific work. 
I also am an art educator. I work at the Museum of Modern Art at the Drawing Center, both in New York. I work at the Garrison Art Center, uh, teaching classes, and I teach at Mercy College. I teach an art history survey for them. Mm, that's awesome. So um, how is it that you came to be a professional artist? Like, I'm curious, as, as a kid, did you always know you wanted to do art? Or is it something that sort of found you? Um, well, I used to study music and I wanted to be a musician. I was very good at it. I, I loved it. Um, you know, and I would find myself with instruments all the time, uh, finding the tunes and finding the chords. So I was invited to go to the, the music school uh, in New York City. Um, but my mother was too afraid to let her young daughter uh, go off on the subway. So there was another school in um, Queens, which was, um, they used to divide the art music schools into uh, diocese. There's the Manhattan Bronx, was a school um, of art, which is now LaGuardia. And then there was the Diocese of Brooklyn, Queens. And right near where I lived was that school, Andrew Jackson. I was accepted into Andrew Jackson, but they did not have um, room for the music department. They, I had to wait a semester. Mm -hmm. And they put me in art while I waited. Mm. Anyway, um, there was no turning back. <laughs> like, um, it was like I discovered myself. I identified with making things since I was a very little girl. I was always making things, um, finding a way to make things, always, always uh, tinkering, uh, finding, you know, my father was a guitarist, but he was also an electrician. Mm -hmm. So I'd find why from the guitar I'd make things and when I discovered that there was this thing called art <clears throat> it was like well so um that all began around the the consciousness of it began around in the eighth grade wow that's so funny so you found art because you couldn't find music <laughs> right well no I found actually music accepted me it was just a matter of having to wait wait yeah and, um and I chose the art making sometimes I wonder you know like I love music so much and um, I listen to so many kinds and I'm always identifying movements and and um you know the kind of music it is and who is the musician and what is that instrument? And I can, I'm, I'm very mm -hmm. connected, I love it. Um, but I wonder sometimes, you know, maybe, maybe <laughs> I would have been a good musician, but I, I didn't go that way. I went, and then when I worked with Clay, the day that I discovered Clay, um, there was another note turning back. Um, yes. Um, it was like, wow, this material, you, you could do anything, anything. You could be a painter with it. You can make sculpture with it. You can make utilitarian objects with it. You can make jewelry with it. Forget it. It was everything. And, um, and so I, I stayed with Clay. Oh, I love that. I, I love that you just described it the way that you did, that you can be a painter with it, that you can be a sculptor with it. Like 
all of the ways of making art like come together with clay because I think and you could probably talk about this a little bit better than I do clay is so um grounding because it is like of the earth right and you're like pulling the earth to make something you know beautiful right and then there's also the alchemy of it when you get to the glazing yeah and and putting together all kinds of other materials and minerals that come out of the earth and with with adding um fire to it and transformation oh my god it's so beautiful yes um you know so so I'm a I'm a clay artist. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, while we're kind of talking here, can you give us a quick description of your body of work so that um, and listeners they can definitely go to your website to have a look. But can you sort of describe it like the overall themes that you deal with in it and sort of how those things manifest visually? Um, I know well, that that's. Um, I started off as a potter first. I was making pottery, and when I went to graduate school, I started making large, large vessels. And um, as the vessels would become larger and larger, kind of twisted, huge forms, they looked more and more human, figurative, um, like like gestures of the human body. Mm-hmm. So I began making figurative art, even though at the time um, that was a real no-no. Uh, everybody was making uh, abstract art. Figurative art was past tense. You don't need to make the figure, blah, 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 blah. Oh, I got that in grad school so much. <laughs> so I kept doing it. And then, um, I mean, I remember uh, when I did my graduate show, which was when I dared to show my figurative stuff, the president of Cranbrook said to me that um, that the founders of that institution were turning over in their grave. <laughs> oh, no, my God. I know, well, that was him. Anyway, um, <laughs> I was like, well... Uh, I guess they needed to shift. Anyway, um, <laughs> but, um, I went, I got a residency at the Studio Museum in Harlem. Actually, before that, I went to Mexico and I lived in Mexico for a year where you don't have to be afraid of doing anything. Um, mm-hmm. I was making vessels, I was making figures, I was making animals. I was looking at... Um, their mythologies and and the serpent and I was doing all of that I left a huge body of work in Mexico did you photograph it I did but you know this is before digital so it's all in slides and who knows where that is but (laughs) um, I went to the studio museum in Harlem I got a residency right after that and I, I kept going with what I was doing in in Mexico. Now, two things happened. My mother got very, very sick and I would have to visit her in the hospital every day, but I had to put in certain hours at the museum. Otherwise I would lose the residency. Mm -hmm. So I would go, I would go visit my mother in the morning. I would go to the residency and work, work, work. And then I'd go to my mother and be with her as long as I could. Nobody knew what was wrong. Mm-hmm. It took about 10 days before they figured it out and all was well. However, at the end of that time, I was making a figure and it wasn't until I was photographing it that I recognized I had done a portrait of her. 
which oh. I, I still have this sculpture. And I started to recognize that clay has a way of coming with, you know, like the world comes within, you listen to it, you see it, you acknowledge it, you observe it, you take it in. And if you're really like in the meditation of it, it comes out in your artwork and in the clay, it was incredible. That is beautiful. But there was more, the museum had a collection of um, Congo African um, Nikisi power figures. And they were unbelievably powerful. Talk about power, power figures. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow. So I started to use that inspiration um, within the figures. I would make the figures, but I'd want them to have that power. And <clears throat> part of what would give it the power is not only that it was made out of clay, but that I could add things to it after. Oh, um, like totem. So, like, yeah. So I would fire it and I would add mud to it or I would add um, dripping stuff that I would somehow like bind to the piece. Um, and they were a lot life signs. Um, you know, I would use a lot of iron because they use iron uh, to draw out the power and the spirit that's within each piece. So I started to do this. Um, I added seashells, rocks, you name it. <clears throat> Always, you know, material from the earth, material that had life, material that, you know, or I would add other ceramic objects like bowls and um, necklaces and stuff like that that I made. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> so that is how my work began. And I, and, you know, they became more and more about shrines mm -hmm. and more and more about personal spirituality that people can give to the work of art. So like I make the figure, but it isn't complete until... Uh, whoever, you know, has it, puts it in, in their shrine, um, altar, whatever, emboldens it, like um, <clears throat> gives it the power. You know, I, I, am, I, I make the vessel in a sense with the, with the sculpture, but whoever has it fills it with the power if that makes any sense a hundred percent like so you're letting people project their story and their spirituality and imbue the piece with meaning through their viewing of it and their use of it exactly I love that so you you think of art um if I if I broke it down into to categories so first you have the medium itself the earth that you work with as creator to channel through a vessel into which a viewer can pour their own beliefs Exactly. I love that. It's so interesting just how like powerful art is to kind of like conduct that sort of, um, how do you say, that sort of process, like making, seeing and the like revelation and the awareness that comes from like all the parts. So that's amazing. Um <laughs> What are you currently working on? 
Well, <clears throat> that's the best question that you could possibly ask. <laughs> <laughs> With this virus thing and people in the family being sick and, and being in the house and in the studio, you have to confront, um, but without, from within only. Mm -hmm. There's like no, you can't actually go out and, and really take in the world because the world has become a scary place to wander in, to have community with. Mm -hmm. So that is depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And um, I come into my studio really and I stare into space for hours. Um, I do anything. I go in the rabbit hole of the computer, researching anything, it could be bread, uh, which was by the way, a wonderful thing to discover. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, now it's been, what's this, the seventh or eighth week of this. Um, I'm, I, I actually talked to a friend who does, um, I forget how to pronounce it. Ak, you told me. Oh, Akashic Records. Akashic Records, which, you know, I don't understand Akashic Records. <laughs> However, talking to her was a wonderful thing. And one of the things that she said was, you know, the best thing to do is just to go and do what you do. Just do what you're mm. doing. Don't be afraid to just repeat yourself a million times. So that's what I've done. I've, um, in the studio, I've just finished making, I finished making one figure um, that I had started before this whole thing. And I finished that one. Um, and I sent, it's right now in the kiln. Um, and then I started another figure like weeks later, last week, and I just finished it yesterday. And I'm working on another figure and I'm planning to begin two more. The one of the two that I plan to start is going to be a life-sized bust from the waist up um, of a woman uh, with her arms crossed. And, um, but I plan to put her with something She's going to be about something, though I don't know what that something is. And this is actually based on um, Judith of Holofrains, the woman who uh, who cuts off this this tire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it isn't that I imagine myself as Judith because I don't, but I think that the um, the severing of tyrannical uh, anything is important. And so like, what are we severing? We're trying to, we're trying to get rid of this virus. We're trying mm -hmm. to get rid of this. Um, so I, I, the figure of the woman being really strong with her attributes at, you know, she's surrounded by the attributes in old paintings. Um, you will have a portrait of Judith She'll be, hold, she'll be holding a sword and there'll be the head of holoframes in a sense as a trophy because men would paint these and they didn't quite. <laughs> um, I'm not thinking of it as a trophy, but um, I, I am thinking about that imagery. And so I'm um, starting, you know, probably this week, a bust, uh, a mid figure life size of a woman I do not yet know what the imagery will be that will be 
around her. I only know that I'm starting this piece. And um, in all of these weeks being in my studio and being um, isolated, aside from Zoom and um, virtual kinds of meetings, um, I haven't really seen people. And this is what, this is the image that's come to my consciousness. This is what I'm going to do. It's a bit taboo. Um, I'm not quite, I'm, I'm almost uncomfortable talking about it, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but I am that, you know, I'm going to try to have the courage to make this piece. I like that you are also um, open to the piece transforming through the process of making which I think is like a really interesting and beautiful kind of way to let the art and the idea channel through you. And so like, I, I mean, we could probably go into why you're uncomfortable making it, but I like, I think it's a great topic to consider right now because that image always fascinated me too. And I've done a couple like derivative pieces of that where I've done self portraits where I'm holding my own head, like in that same pose. But it's that like, it's that feminine masculine division, but also she's cut off the head. So she's cut off the intellect, the like organizing, the controlling drive of the tyranny. And so like, that's also kind of what we're looking at as a society right now, as we're thinking about coronavirus and, um, and our political system, like exactly how is it that we got to this point? How did, how is this organized and how can we dismantle it and make something better? Yeah. But um, yeah. So I honor that you're honoring this idea and not being afraid of it. <laughs> it's a, that's a hard thing to do too. So I know you because we did this, um, disastrous residency together <laughs> and I call it disastrous not because we didn't make good work but because of um, the organizer and I actually recorded an episode about um, that that whole experience uh, but I'm curious how does travel and multiculturalism fit into your work or your identity as an artist well um, as, as a child we would travel back and forth from New York to Puerto Rico because the family my family comes from Puerto Rico so um, we would visit my, my family over there and there was something amazing about changing your environment um, from going to something that was familiar and ordinary and and routine to something that was completely new and different and to meet people who lived and had a totally different reality every day with a different routine and a different surroundings and and different even daily rituals because like you know uh, my grandfather would go get milk from the cow every morning yeah. uh, and uh, my grandmother would grind and roast the beans of the coffee beans, um, you know, when I was, a, you know, I was a kid, you know, I would go to the, the, the bodega downstairs. Um, <laughs> so um, that change, that shift made me very, very, very curious about the world. So like, so if this was going on and it was my family, that would be this different, this 
they'd have such a different uh, sense of information, other things, more smells, everything was different. I wanted to see the world. Yeah. And from the time I'm a teeny little kid, I wanted to go everywhere. And I remember driving when I was nine years old from New York City to South Carolina to visit a cousin who was in the army. And my cousin is black. And we went with my aunt, his mother, mm -hmm. and um, we were we would go to a restaurant and no one would tell us we couldn't be in the restaurant, but no one would serve us. We would be there for hours. And we were like, what's wrong with these? So then I think it was my mother that figured it out. And so when we would go to a motel, my aunt would have to hide um, oh until we could get the room. Or when we went to um, a takeout place, my brother and I, my brother, I was nine, he was six. We would go order for the family because they wouldn't serve us if they saw my aunt. What the? So now I was living another reality traveling. Like, uh -huh. wow. You know, and so, and then we traveled to Mexico and that was like, talk about, wow. Uh, um, <laughs> another world um, of the most beautiful and another sense of smell and another, uh, there were mountains that were like enormous and cliffs and, and like, and then, you know, caves that you could visit where you'd see um, golondrinas, I don't know what they're called in English, <laughs> swallows, I think, swallows. Um, and just just the most beautiful stuff. What you could you could go to a waterfall and and swim behind the waterfall, and there was this cave beyond yeah. that. You could go in there, and all of a sudden, I was seeing something else. So anyway, the world the world needed to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> I I still want to continue doing this. Uh, so that's how. That's why I travel. Um, I am intrigued. I want to see. I want to see the art. I want to see the museums. I want to see the spiritual aspect of that part of the world. Or I, I want to listen to how the the language sounds, the music, the smells, the food, everything. <laughs> mm. Oh, you just gave me such a case of wanderlust. <laughs> right. I mean, I want to go back to India. Yes, I was supposed to be there. We talked about this. You were also supposed to be at a residency in Iceland, Greenland? No, this time I was supposed to be. In fact, I was supposed to leave last night and arrive today um, to a residency in Cadiz, Spain for three mm. months. I just got a letter from them. I wrote to them and, um, you know, talking about the situation and they are very assuring that I will be able to go there at a later point. So um, while I'm not there right now, I look forward to a residency there, um, hopefully in the nearer future. Uh, but yeah, I was supposed to be there. Mm, yeah, uh, Spain's on my list of places to see as soon as things open up. But we talked a little bit about this last time and I wonder if you might describe just sort of how being in a different environment influences your work. Well, being in a different environment almost dictates the work <laughs> because um, 
You're not in the same place that you know. You can't go to anything that is uh, safe, so to speak, or comfortable. Let's put it that way. Not mm-hmm. safe, comfortable. So, like, you establish, you know, when you first go into the studio, in a new studio, or whether it's graduate school, whatever, you have an idea of what you're going to do, and and then you have to find the materials and how to do it and the space in your head. Um, but but by the time you leave that experience, whether it's graduate school or a new studio, you your the work that you leave with is entirely not at all what you thought. <laughs> um, and that um, to me is the most amazing thing. And so, like a few years ago, um, I had a studio residency at the Museum of Art and Design which was open to the public. They watched the artists working and talk about a challenge. Uh-huh. Not only are you in a new space, a new environment to make something, but the public is there asking questions. Uh, uh, so you're like performing the act of making art. Right. However, it's the public that made a shift in my work because one uh, particular uh, visitor who happened to also be a clay artist wanted to know what it would, how would I um, put two things together in one, like make a double-headed vessel. Uh His his mind, they were open vessels. And since I make figures, um, and I had had a a sketch of a two-sided perfume bottle that I saw in Italy, and I thought was just beautiful, I opened up my sketchbook to that drawing. Uh-huh. And I started making these double-sided figures um, just because this person asked me to demonstrate it. And it became. And um, for a while, I was making double-sided figures. Um, so that experience of having been at that residency and have, remembering the one at Studio Museum in Harlem made me realize that residencies are a way to uh, freshen up your work. Mm-hmm. make it new, make it lively, make it new for yourself. Mm. And, um, and it's all because of this challenge, the challenge of what am I going to do in this place? What am I going to learn in this new environment? What can I get out of here? Yeah. It, you know, or it's not even so much what can I get out of here? What can I make in a place? So two years ago, I was in Iceland. And the idea was that I was going to work with Icelandic clay using Icelandic minerals to do the alchemy of glazes and colors. Anyway, um, Iceland is extraordinarily expensive. (laughs) And so I couldn't afford what I got the residency to go there to do. I I mean, I did get some clay and work with it. But um, outside of the studio door is this fjord, which pushed in all of this seaweed, huge kelp. So I started working with seaweed while I was there and talk about, talk about a change. Um, right now I'm back with clay. I'm in my studio and it's wonderful and I love it. But for two years after that Icelandic experience, I only worked with seaweed. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I want to go back to the beach to get more more seaweed 
I think, I think of seaweed, seaweed as being like the ocean's contribution to your work. So you have the earth for the, for the clay, and then you have like the contribution of water with the seaweed. It, and then the air dries it, right? Yeah, and it gets hard just like clay uh, because it doesn't fire. So like clay becomes permanent in the fire. You It changes. the. It is no longer clay when you fire it. Um, mm-hmm. It's no longer earth, so to speak. It becomes more like stone or glass. And um, seaweed will harden. So you can actually make incredible forms. Um, and, you know, you can make lamps. I made lamps. But but it's all, it's a short life. Um, eventually, it will, um, you know, become like a prune. <laughs> um, it keeps absorbing the, the moisture in the air and so it gets soft, it gets hard, it gets soft, it gets hard. It grows crystals of salt, um, you know, and if you really like seaweed, you can eat it. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, but you can't, it won't, won't I, I, I don't know that it can become a permanent uh, object. There are other artists that are working with uh, these kinds of materials. As I discovered the material, of course, I did a ton of research um, to find who else is working with this. Um, and actually on Instagram, there's a whole like hashtag called seaweed art. Ooh. Keeps growing and growing and growing. But in the biennial, in the Venice biennial, um, this past one, there was a woman who built these huge, beautiful, beautiful vessels out of she calls it algae, but I recognize kelp. <laughs> and, like, That's kelp. Um, and so um, I don't think her work, I don't know if that's a permanent thing. I don't know how, what, if it can be processed in such a way that it can be permanent. There's another woman named Loman, who I think is British, who made a series of lamps and forms also large. Her work and the other woman's work relies very much on armature, mm-hmm. uh, on the structure of the skeleton, and um, and then it's held together, or or the the algae or the kelp or what the seaweed um, is the skin, mm-hmm. and of course when you know it it stretches as it dries and it's also translucent. So you have these beautiful colors of honey, amber, brown, kind of a bluish, uh, certainly a purplish, a reddish, depending upon what seaweed you're using or how decomposed it is as you use it. Because when seaweed decomposes, before it decomposes, it turns completely white, like bones. Uh, It's beautiful. Oh my God. Anyway, um, these other artists... Uh, have built these armatures. I built a few armatures also out of metal, but the metal rusts, so it's different. Um, I don't build armature out of wood, um, kind of like lanterns, like, um, or bamboo, Mm -hmm. like uh, uh, Noguchi lamps. But um, I'm, I'm thinking about it, but that becomes a whole other process. It's like, okay, now I have to learn that process <laughs> yeah but I really just I really just like working directly with this seaweed stretching it out um putting balloons 
stretching it from frame to frame, putting it on uh, hoops. I mean, just uh, so you know. And and I I wrapped it around some sculpture, um, and then I fired this sculpture, but nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't, didn't do a thing. Oh, yeah. I think that's the well, but experimenting, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what it's about. Um, I love that. So I love that you talked about the clay going through the firing and becoming permanent, and and that being its um. Well, not the end of its transformation, because we talked about how the viewer or the person who then, you know, purchases it, takes it and uses it. And so it continues sort of having like a lifespan. And then I think it's interesting, the like seaweed, which comes from the water and dries in the air, has like a a very temporal sort of existence when it's quote unquote finished. And then it continues to transform after it's been transformed, right? Like when you talked about it turning white, and then disintegrating, that sounded so gorgeous to me. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, that the transformation of both of these materials, um, but I think it's just the transformation of anything that's alive. Um, Somebody, you know, when I read a quote that said, everything that's alive will die, Mm-hmm. And, I, and you realize how true that is. But you also recognize that the earth is this alive organism. And, um, and you know, that the things that are coming out of the water are alive. But even as they're dying, there's this transformation. And, and, and what becomes of it later, it becomes nutrients for the earth. It can, or it becomes an object that can glisten and be beautiful or, um, or an object that's utilitarian, like, you know, roof tiles or, Mm. you know, cups to drink tea out of or whatever. It's like, um, so that it, it, you know, everything that's alive will die, but does it really die? It transforms, it becomes something else. And, um, you know, I guess as an artist, I'm, you know, I, I'm trying to help, I'm trying to make things become something else. Maybe it's a personal thing. Uh, <laughs> a friend of mine once said, a friend who who is, he's a spiritualist. He considers himself a shaman. He's an artist. He's a, a, an amazing painter. And um, he, I haven't heard from him in years, but he, um, we were talking about this. I think it was around the death of my parents. And I was, he's like, Ada, all artists, when you really, really get down to it, are shamans. Yes. Um, I thought, you know, there's some truth to that. I mean. More we, than some truth. And it, I mean, I don't know if it's a shamanic practice for the world, but it's certainly a shamanic practice for ourselves. <laughs> um, it's not like if I'm going to go out and heal anybody, but I can heal. But your work body. could. That I'm hoping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That will be a nice idea. And I think when we heal ourselves, we heal everything around us too. Yeah, maybe. I mean, definitely you have to start with yourself. Uh, yeah. So. We've kind of already touched on this, um, but if if you want to skip this question, we can, or if you want to 
answer it super directly. That's cool too. I have, um, how do you see themes of spirituality weaving in your work? And do you see art as having spiritual properties or purposes? And I thought this was a good time to bring this one up because we just talked about artists being shamans. <laughs> right. Well, definitely the spirituality weaving in my work. Um, well, as a kid, and we talked about this before, um, I was raised Roman Catholic and I was always sent, we were always off to mass. My mother had been a nun. Oh, uh, my grandmother was very, very religious, and she was also a healer. Mm. Um, so, you know, um, but, you know, as a kid, what do you know? What does one know about, you know, why you go to church? It was all about ritual, and and the Catholic Church has a way of making things, the, the rituals be also very beautiful. Mm-hmm. depends on the church you go to but as a kid you know the the mass was still in latin um everything was was about this incredible ritual i mean i remember you know having my first communion um being a flower girl at a wedding mm-hmm. um you know and then and then there's this person wearing these beautiful robes you know um holding up these beautiful chalices and and it was all about like wow this is so beautiful the the stained glass windows all around the church the sculptures everywhere so for me (laughs) that was spirituality right (laughs) like um, i didn't you know understand that there was a whole like philosophy here Um, (laughs) i just saw it all in a very physical way and you know, the the other thing about the ritual is it's also very tedious. There's certain tedium when it's droning out and he's talking for a really long time. <laughs> you look around the room and you're completely fascinated, you know, by that sculpture or or the stations of the cross, watching these incre- this story take place. In, in imagery or um, the icons that there there was an icon in the church that we attended where of all of the different sculptures and everything all around the church, this is the one that everybody went to. And it was almost like the most special one, but it was also the simplest one. Um, it was the smallest one, but it had a million candles all of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was of a woman. It was it was a painting of a woman who is looking at at the viewer, like as if this person. And and it's interesting because in terms of India, there's this idea of darshan, of of, of seeing and being seen right? Like the importance of witness somehow. And so this icon, it was like the the witness, somebody that can really see you. And if you are in pain, someone that can see that, Mm -hmm. that it's somehow um, not your fault or um, they, they can see you with compassion, so to speak. And so, so this is the thing that people would go to this small painting of a woman who was looking at you like and so you know when you ask oh well that's the mother of god or that's the mother Uh um, she embodies 
you know, the person that will take care of you. And so it was like my favorite part of the church, um, that mystery of how is this person, you know, in this painting, um, who is this person? And, and the whole idea that the painting wasn't a painting, but rather a window <laughs> and, um, and that that person was on the other side of the window, which was, you know, in Catholic terms, it was heaven or whatever. I don't really know what it was, um, but um, but it doesn't matter. It still has the effect, right? You know, of and the, right, and, yeah. and that was the power of this painting. Oh, and um, you know, I also remember when the Michelangelo Spieta came to the United States. It was in the 1963 World's Fair in New York, and my mother uh, wanted to see it. And um, so we go to the World's Fair, and of course the World's Fair was a wonder of things um, for a kid. <laughs> I don't remember how old I was. I was a kid. But I remember to see Michelangelo's Pieta, you had to get on this, con you were standing on a line that would lead you to a conveyor belt. Stop. <laughs> on the conveyor belt, you would like go slowly in front of this marble sculpture of this beautiful, beautiful young woman with a man on her lap and you don't know you know as a kid you don't know why is he on her lap is he sleeping <laughs> yeah her boyfriend her husband who's this guy um <laughs> and, it, and it turns out it's you know he's dead and this is his mother as a child you don't question that um you just wow wow you know this is terribly terribly sad yeah and then of course we would get off the conveyor belt and we would get back online to see it again <laughs> I did this a few times, um, and I don't remember, Emily, if this was my mother's doing or my doing, but I suspect it was, I want to see that again. Uh -huh. and there were two things I liked about it. The conveyor belt, because <laughs> I was on a ride, taking a ride. But there was also something so beautiful. It wasn't until I'm like 40-something years old that I see it again in Italy at St. Peter's. It's like I was about to ask if you had been to Italy to see it in its natural habitat. I did. And then and then of course I'm teaching the art history survey and I <laughs> I'm telling the students, you know, when I come back, so so there's this woman and it looks like it's his lover and I don't understand. <laughs> Oh no, Ada. Ada. No, you cut out. Ada. Hello. Here. Hello. Okay. You cut out at um, it's this woman, and I don't know if it's her lover. Right. So because she's younger than the man on her lap, it looks yeah. Like. So it is my student who is an Italian American who <laughs> explains it to me. He says, oh, no, you don't know the story. And I'm like, what's the story? He says, when the angel Gabriel approaches her and tells her that she will ha be the mother of God, right? Uh -huh. She will never age. She's so pure and beautiful that she remains this way. So, of course, Michelangelo uh -huh. is an incredibly beautiful young woman 
holding and I'm like, oh my God, this is one of those Catholic stories that, <laughs> that always like grab my attention. It's like, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, yes. but anyway, spirituality weaves into work this weird way. It's just magic. It's magical. It just takes you to another place. Um, it's it beauty takes a person to another place and beauty can be from nature from the heavens you can see the comets going by the the shooting stars the glowing moon and and you know in art it's what other humans make mm. other human beings spent the time you know to make that piece so beautiful they they had to be skilled they had to practice and and i just find it you know gorgeous and mm. so that is how spirituality reached to my world. <laughs> oh and there's a beauty in our humanity in the stories we tell <laughs> right right but like also in the power of seeing art i just mm, thank you for that that was so beautifully stated so i am curious what, if any, sort of hurdles have you faced in your artistic journey and what keeps you going? Well, the artistic hurdles continue, Emily. Look at the world <laughs> we're living in right now. Let's <laughs> uh, see, I've had, I don't know how many studios and I don't know how many studios I've lost because the building was sold or the, uh. or the landlord realized he needed more money or, or whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. um, or a studio where I was the technician and then they decided to hire another technician, mm. etc. cetera. Um, and so the biggest hurdle is always money um, and a studio. Mm -hmm. How to have a studio, because in order to have a studio, you have to pay the rent for it. You have to pay for it. In order to pay for it, you have to have a job that not only pays your life, but mm -hmm. is also paying your studio. Um, <laughs> not to mention the materials. So it's always about money um, and what happens, you know, somehow it, things weirdly resolve or don't resolve. When they don't resolve, you find another way. For, for many years, I didn't have a studio because I lost it to this, that, or the other. And I wound up having an artist residency an hour and a half away, mm -hmm. which is a three-hour commute round trip. Ooh. And I drive there because the studio was free. Ah, another time I had a studio another hour away. It was a friend of mine's studio. She just built it. She didn't have any use for it yet. I could use it until she was ready. I used that studio for a year, you know, and then of course she was ready. And I was more than grateful for having had that year. Uh-huh. So, and then when I lost my studio tech job, um, which was the last big, beautiful, amazing studio. It was huge, state of the arts, everything. But anyway, I lost that. A friend of mine said, Ada, you have a small studio in your own house. Yep. Which I used to use uh, before my daughter was born. But then when my daughter was born, we needed all of the space. So I, but now she's, she was off to college. And I was like, yeah. So my studio had become the storage. So there was a guy across the street who had a dumpster 
Huh? <laughs> and, we, we dumpster, and I hired these laborers to just basically to, to take everything out of that basement and throw it in that dumpster. Nice. They, and I said everything. I don't know what's in those boxes. They've been there for 10 years. I, I don't need it. it. I don't want to know what's in those boxes because all of a sudden I want to keep it. Yep. Just into, and so I then had a studio. Yay. <laughs> yeah, I... I had a terrible experience where I had to sue the person that I was renting a studio from um, in Louisville. And, and that's when I realized I had to put my studio in my house because that was the only space I, I, I thought would ever be reliable. It's the one you can't, well, you can lose anything, but um, yeah, but it's the one that's the harder to lose. If you create a space within your own home, um, you, as long as you live there, you can work in that space. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, it's small. It's not, I, I've had ideal studios, yeah. uh, <laughs> but, you know, I can't say this is not ideal because there's something else that happens when you have an at-home studio. And it's like, this is where you can really go deeply into yourself mm -hmm. um, because it is part of your, uh, life it's part of your daily everything and and there the search is a different search you know how do you break the routine and make you know what is it that's coming out of this at home personal space mm. so here I am and I always have to clean it out in order to start a new piece and my house has become my my husband's going crazy because it's become the the storage unit of my sculpture. Yes, <laughs> we have we have that in our basement currently. <laughs> it's like all sculptures everywhere. Oh yeah. I have a horrible habit of keeping some things that are not quite done. Like I'll start on something and then I'll I'll lose the inspiration for it or I'll get the sense that it needs to rest before I finish it. And so I have like boxes of unfinished things that will maybe be finished someday, question mark. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, and then the minute you throw it away, you realize how you could have resolved that thing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Always. So right. like what what has kept you going? Like when when you've lost and found studios or like what sort I, of I think it's just stubborn determination. And <laughs> it's like it's like the only thing that I realized that I can go into deep depression and I have gone into bad depression when I'm not working. Mm -hmm. And that obviously I have to work. Um, and so um, work has been many things because um, sometimes I haven't been able to make sculptures. So then it becomes um, book binding. I make books. Oh, yes. I make jewelry. I make paper. I print, I do, I, I work with printmaking um, so that when I, when I haven't been able to work with the clay or when I am at a lull with the clay, like when I'm kind of fed up with what I'm doing with the clay and I need another, I'll go to the printmaking uh, world and printmaking can be done by hand if it's a linoleum cut or a wood cut. Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, I do have access you know, in, in certain jobs, I have to an etching press and I'll spend a few hours. I'll like plan it all out and I'll spend like some hours in an evening 
Last summer, I had an etching print uh, studio. I did sculpture with, and I worked mostly with seaweed, but I was in a printmaking studio. So I used the etching press every day, all the time. So you just, you just, as an artist, you just can't stop working. It could be making paper, paper mache. And, and because I teach and I teach children in the summer, um, having access even to a craft room with mm -hmm. it enables you, or me, enables me to just always be working. And, and um, often the work I do with children um, leads me to my own language because what I do with children is what I do. So I'm working with the figure, the kids work with the figure. I'm working with seaweed, the kids work. I'm working with nature, the kids work with nature. Uh, because it's, it's like where my mind goes, the, the activity, the project, the idea. You know, and then somebody will say, well, but the kids need to learn about science. No problem, a science project that becomes an art project or mm -hmm. the kids to learn about math. No problem, let's start breaking it up like fractions and we start you know measuring and no so it, it works out that's how I've made it work for me um when things are are tough I love that actually that kind of feeds into the last question I have for you which is how do you see your various roles from being a mother to being an art educator to being co-owner or you know member of the gallery that you're in even as a student yourself how do you see those roles affecting your work and your self-expression? Well, they're all feeding into it because it's all about my life too. Um, my life and my artwork are, are so integrated. Um, when my daughter was born, um, I made paper, but mm -hmm. then when at, she was like nine months old, when I had to go back to a job, I needed to make money. So I remember it was my birthday. My daughter was at the childcare and I had to go to work. Uh -huh. And halfway to my job, I was like, I can't go to work. I have to go to the studio. And I called in sick, even though I wasn't <laughs> sick. I've ne I had never done this and I have never really, I don't do this. Um, but that day I went into my studio and I made a clay baby. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, you had a knee, like you had something that needed to come through. Right, and so all of a sudden, uh, and of course, after that, I went back to work. But then I started working on these, what I call divine babies. Love it. And I did a whole series of baby sculptures. And then I realized as my daughter got older, and, you know, her body would change, I would do like, molds of her feet, molds of her hands. You know, most people do it because everybody wants a little handprint of their baby and blah, blah, blah. I was doing it. <laughs> and, um, and so then, um, you know, so as an art educator, I had a full-time job for a while, um, which, you know, it lasted a little while, lasted a while. But when my parents both died, one right after the other, everything was a mess. It was just a very depressing, horrible time. And I lost my job. And so now 
I had my daughter in my house. I didn't lose my job to the extent where I was fired. I was receiving unemployment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I decided to create, because I was an art educator for a particular uh, large gallery. Mm-hmm. So I decided to become an art educator in the community I lived in. Um, and I approached the local library and um, said that I could offer art, book arts, teaching uh, young people how to bind books. Oh my God, that's genius. Using the books in the library as examples of all the different types of bindings of of the different kinds of um, conservation that libraries use. And they gave me permission. So um, that way I got to know uh, the community. Mm -hmm. I got to know the people in the community that would be interested in such a thing. Mm -hmm. And their children became my daughter's friends. Um, And from that job, I then got hired at a really nice art center. So that, um, you know, being an art educator, this is who I am. This is what I know. Um, How do I share this? And how do I include my daughter in my life? so that she can share it with me. Mm -hmm. Um, I can, um, and at the same time I can be with her Mm -hmm. where I'm not at this full-time job, never seeing her, um, which I had been living until this time when, and so it was bizarre. My, you know, my parents died, I hid depression, but then it, it becomes transformed as a kind of, it was a gift to suddenly have my daughter mm-hmm. to, to suddenly be with her and have her to be a part of my life in my artwork as well. You know, um, now she's become a teacher and she uses all of the, I mean, she's constantly writing to me. How do I make this? Look at this poster. I want to do it with my kids. She's thinking, um, she thinks visually um, and she thinks in terms of visual projects to get her students to understand concepts oh. that um, enhance their ability to learn. And so, you know, uh, she uses art as a tool, which it is, as I did, as I used it in her upbringing and, um, and it became my livelihood. I love that so much. So I also really am interested that you like created your own job, essentially. Like you, you took a thing that you were interested in and passionate about, and then you found like you found the place where it fit. And then you just approached them and and you were like, Hey, I'd like to do this. And then all the other good stuff that was out there for you came to you because of that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, they didn't know what else to do. And the whole, like, it, it wasn't easy approaching a <laughs> local conservative Republican library with this art idea. Uh-huh. I had to um, create a series of books um, to show them mm-hmm. the materials that would be used. I had to clean the little tiny space that I had, but, but, but I did it, and um, 
you know, I, I don't know. This is kind of what I tell everybody, that everything will always get difficult. And um, nothing stays the same as things change. Sometimes it changes easier. Mm-hmm. But, but there, there, there comes moments where you're facing terrible hardships or maybe not so terrible, but bad enough. You have to invent. You you have to invent for yourself, and the invention does not come overnight, man. You have to. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta think about this a lot, and um, and and then some ideas that you might have and try out really just fall apart. That didn't work. Well, that didn't work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but then um, you keep going with them, you know. But you don't have a choice. If you're going to make artwork, you don't have a choice of you need. I mean, I think that if I weren't living in this this house where I live in, if I were living, had been living in New York when all of this happened, I probably would have gotten a different kind of job. I used to be a paralegal before I went to graduate school in order to pay my bills. And New York is expensive, even in even when it wasn't expensive, when it wasn't expensive, you just made less money. Um, <laughs> the um, you you need to have a job, really yep. a, a paying job. So, like I used to work as a paralegal, I would you, do a lot of night shifts because it paid better. And then you know you're dead tired. You also have to do laundry. You have to do shopping. You have to make your food. I mean, by the time you look at your remaining time what free hours you have to make artwork so you know I would become a member of an art center myself of the the Greenwich House Pottery um and then of course when a job came up there I took it but Mm -hmm. had I been living in New York City when all of this other stuff went down I probably would have worked in an office because it would have been the only way to pay the bills um, but it was working in an office before we moved to this house that I was able to work in an office in an art center and then continue working in that studio. It was, I mean, I don't even know how to do how to explain this, Emily. It's not like if I I just have to go where I can make the work. Yep. And if it means um, starting all over again, becoming a member, I'm a member of the Center for Book Arts. Um, you know, taking a weekend workshop, making paper, even though I know how to make paper, Mm -hmm. I'll make paper with somebody else and um, have them work out all of the details on, you know, the paper. Um, And, you know, when I do it here, up here, there's RNF, which is an encaustic supplier, and they give workshops. And I... Them, I take these workshops. Um, in fact, Emily, if you want to take the workshop up in RNF, uh, you're totally welcome to stay in my house. To <laughs> up there. <laughs> I was literally just like, I want to take an encaustic workshop. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there's a few possible ways to do it, but we'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, not right now, obviously, right. but yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so if I could kind of summarize a little bit of what you're saying is that the the path to art, but really to anything, to the life that you want to live is never an easy path. And it's always about problem solving 
and being like willing to put in the effort. And to take chances. Yes. Uh, uh, and you really have to be willing also to fail. Mm, big in, time. Yeah, in certain areas and not be not be discouraged. Just kind of, of course you are discouraged. It's, it's bullshit too. You suffer a lot. It's bullshit. But, um, <laughs> but, but somehow you try again a different way, a different yeah. way. Uh, you just you just keep going you just keep going or the same way and just put the same question to just different people too because sometimes art is just finding the person your tribe the people that appreciate what you make right yeah a lot of times it's the people who appreciate what you make that in a way determine how you gonna what you're gonna do I mean sometimes people say you can't make to the market but you can uh-huh in fact sometimes i mean it's not so much like i'm making money on this because i'm not no but, yeah. um but when you see somebody really really appreciate something you have made that boost um is a boost to say okay well then i might be doing something that's really good mm-hmm. uh, let me do this again mm-hmm. um you know, or let me do this in a different way now to see, you know, because ultimately when you make work, you want to share it. And when you share it, you definitely want people to see what you put into it. Like um, if you put into it love, you want people to read love. Mm -hmm. You know, you you don't want people to trash it. You don't want people to dismiss it. You don't want people to say it's mediocre. (laughs) You really do want people to find it beautiful. Mm -hmm. Because that's the only way you can measure whether what you're doing is good or not. I mean, you, you can continue doing it and think, okay, well, maybe, you know, all of this will break at some point and nobody will see it or... Or, uh, you know, like there's the whole idea of it will be valuable when you die. I honestly don't care if it's valuable. <laughs> idea of like, all right, I'm going to see it from heaven and everybody's going to be <laughs> my work and I'm going to be so happy. No. <laughs> You'll be the lady in the painting looking at it, everyone. <laughs> no. I want to be the painter who painted that painting. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I think I think the bravery uh, and the self uh, revelation, like the vulnerability that's present in revealing yourself through making art, is something that I know I personally have struggled with, and a lot of artists do struggle with. But like, I guess, kind of rounding this out, like, how do you maybe something to share with the listeners would be how do you personally sort of quiet that voice that's like okay so I made these out of love and what if somebody does dismiss them or how do you just find it in yourself to go ahead and put the stuff out there it's terrifying it Uh, is (laughs) it's my um I'm always afraid uh to go to my own openings yes I get anxiety oh my god so do I and um and when and, and there are going to be people who dismiss what you do, who um, you know they'll call it a million things. Um, 
you know, old, you know, this is too traditional. Yep. This is too sad. Too I mean, pretty. That stuff rejected. Um, you know, one guy from, um, it's from the Baltic region after post, post communism. And he couldn't handle my sculptures because they reminded him of that sadness. At which point, that kind of rejection, it's like, okay, I could deal with that. Yeah. He's, he's really getting, he's really getting it. He's just yep. not able to show it. Um, but, um, but, you know, I get other things, you know, like some, a woman who looked at my work and said, you know, I find your, your work so disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure how is it that she means that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> is it because it disturbs her soul or because she doesn't like it? Um, so you get a lot of things. Or when I was making uh, fetuses, I was making all these fetuses because I was trying to make the human figure. and The divine babies. Right. Before, but even before divine babies, I was oh. making fetuses because I was trying to look at how the human body grows, right? Uh-huh. So I was making um, you know, I was trying to follow it through, like from the fetus to the to the to the baby to the etc. Anyway, um making fetuses was wow, this is so beautiful. So I made like hundreds of them. Anyway, I got accused uh for being um Pro well, I am pro-life, but I'm not anti-abortion. Anyway, yeah. I got I I you know people censored my work. Wow. So, um, I I well not if you're not it's not it's not that I believe that all places have to accept the artist's intention. The artist's intention will shift and change over time. People will see your work in ways that you didn't intend at all. Mm -hmm. um, and there's nothing you can do about that. And nor is there anything you should do about that. However, that particular course that these fetuses was not one that I really wanted people to think. Mm -hmm. So I, I stopped showing them, um, you know, and then I get, I get accused of being sentimental. You know, your work is sentimental and, you know, it's like, what does that mean? Like saccharine sentimental, like, you know, hearts and rainbows. What, what do you mean by sentimental? I am a sentimental person. Yeah. Stop making that a bad thing. Oh my God. I know, it's like all of a sudden, so, so you get accused of being all these things and, and you know that what, whoever is telling you this is telling it to you from some kind of intellectual, whatever. Uh-huh some sense of power and 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 you know you just have to fight it off it's like okay well it's sentimental okay i can't make hearts and rainbows but i've been making hearts man yeah <laughs> uh -huh. they're beautiful too and interesting it's kind of funny because there are some artists out there i think big names whose work is saccharine and whose work is sentimental and we don't judge them the same way that we do ourselves or that we ourselves are judged because they've already been quote validated by the system and so it's interesting just art in general and the art world and art criticism and all that kind of stuff I, I think because it like wants to think about and wants to understand and know itself but I think in doing that it also creates um 
false identities or it has a tendency to like keep people from their truest expression. Yeah, I mean, uh, as as to me, if the human spirit wants to make something, Mm -hmm. whatever is driving them to make that something, more power to you. Just keep going. Um, I get really upset when all of a sudden somebody says, oh, well, that's outsider art. Really? Mm -hmm. And... What does that mean? It's it's a beautiful it's it's something. Look at that energy. Look at that. Look at the power in the piece. Mm-hmm. And um, whether the person was trained or not trained, it's like I don't know. I I you know, or the other one that kills me is well, but that's a forgery or that's a fake or that's <laughs> oh and. And there's probably a million fakes in the museums. Does that mean that I'm not going to stand in front of that painting and say, wow, that's beautiful? Yeah, and have a response. Right. It's like, um, so it's a it's a very funny, it, it's a very tricky place to go. And, and I guess it depends on, on why or what you're looking at the piece for. If you're studying, if you're studying prehistoric times and, and you discover a prehistoric piece and, and it, you're analyzing it for the capabilities of the particular culture it came from at the particular time and then you learn it's a fake. But, you know, I, I don't know. For me, then, the artist is really, I love the artist. Yeah. <laughs> Making believe that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the kid, I think it brings us back to the idea that like art is always, um, in addition to a product of the act of creation on the part of the artist, it is always an act of creation on the part of the viewer. So we we're bringing to art what we want to see there, or we're bringing to art the desire to see something there. In the case of what you're talking about, where it was a forgery and they're like trying to trying to like use it to find out all this stuff about a you know lost civilization or something and then they find out it's not it's not real <laughs> yeah well to I me think- I, but I do like uh, I mean being an educator at the museum I love how the viewer sees things mm-hmm. uh, and talk about uh changing my own perspective on certain things certain works of art that you look at and you have you know one two three interpretations and somebody comes along and throws you right off track saying wow that's another interpretation and isn't that an amazing thing when this one painting or this one sculpture can give so many different um people can have so many different associations Mm. and and create so many different scenarios, stories, interpretations, analysis from the same work of art. I, I love that. So, um, you know, more, more. Yeah. It's so expansive. Well, it has been incredible talking to you and learning more about your work and your life experiences and your philosoph- philosophies on art. I'm curious if the listeners want to find you where they might be able to do that. Well, the website, www.adapilarcruz.com, has a contact. Not only do uh, is some of my work there, of course, not all of it is at all represented there, but some of it is there. And um, 
the contact will come to me. I mean, um, I will see that the person looked at the website um, and I will always answer. And then <clears throat> what happens is that that contact comes to my, um, my email and then I accept it. And when I answer back, the person will have my email. Oh, perfect. Cool. Well, thank you again for coming on the Sacred Adventure podcast. And I look forward to hanging out with you in the non-quarantined future <laughs> up here in the Northeast. Yeah, me too. Okay. Thanks, Emily. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know about you all, but I could listen to Ada talk about art and the meaning of art and how she got into what she's doing now basically all day long. <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions for me, I'd love to hear them. I'm at, I'm at Emily at getting into it at gmail.com. Um, and of course you can find Ada's website and contact her through her website. If you have any specific questions for her at adapilarcruise.com and in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, give it a five-star review, and subscribe. I hope to see you and hear from you again soon, dear, dear listeners. Thank you.